All right. Once again, guys, good morning. Go ahead and turn into your Bibles into Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 53 through 65. Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. The title of the message, as you guys know, we've been, we've been doing this theme on places, and we're in the Sanhedrin court right now. So I've entitled the message, The Sanhedrin Court, Christ Condemned, The Son of God Condemned. Let's go ahead. I'm going to read to you the passage so we get our context. Because things in Jesus' life are now escalating to the point of no return and his, and his seeking to redeem a people for himself. This is where, this is where rubber is meeting the road for Jesus' life. He is going to be killed in T-minus 15 hours from this point. This is a very intimate and intense passage right here as we go and study about Christ and his unlawful trial before an unlawful people. So read with me in verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your all's decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help us to have our heart's attention fully arrested to this scene that took place before the Sanhedrin. This was, this was such a hard time in so many different ways. And, and Lord, I, I ask you to help us to see through this message the beauty of your endurance and your faithfulness to redeem us to be your people when you endured such unlawful accusations and, abu- and abuse to your name to your person. Help us to see you as more precious as we come out of this sermon, to see you and understand all that you endured so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. Jesus, help us to fall more in love with you and the gospel that saved us as we read about what you did in order to make us a free people. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. Christ is before the Sanhedrin court, as, you've, as we've been going through, the life of Christ was back up a little bit. He's been in the garden 
He's been praying. He knew his time was coming. He was asking for the Father's help. God sent angels to strengthen him. We know that the disciples were falling asleep. They couldn't keep up with Jesus, and they, in the midst of all the, the you know, arrest and everything going on of Christ, they fled him. So Christ is by himself now. He is, he is alone in the midst of wolves. He's, he is now being taken to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Jesus is now all by himself and under the care of God the Father alone. There's no followers. There's nobody there to come to his aid. At this point on, everybody that comes in contact with Christ is opposed to him. And abuse and affliction come from every direction. Jesus, as we read in verse 53, says, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. I want us to look at the courtyard of Caiaphas. The time frame right now is midnight somewhere, as we know from the other Gospels. So this is late at night. Jesus was in the garden. He was praying really late. They arrest him, and then they bring him immediately over to Caiaphas. They enter his courtyard. Now, who's Caiaphas? Just as a reminder, some of you guys who have been in church for a while or know your Bibles might know some of these names, but some people who don't or people listening to iTunes for the first time may not know this. So, for your benefit, who's Caiaphas? What was the Sanhedrin? Well, I want us to look at Caiaphas in the court. Um, basically, in a nutshell, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court in Israel's day during Jesus' time. It was the supreme court. They heard both legal and, excuse me, they heard both civil and criminal cases, and they settled disputes about religious law from the law of Moses. The group was a, uh, a throng of 70 men. It was composed of both scribes, those who translated scripture and, and wrote copies of scripture and were teachers of the law, as well as priests, those who were dedicated to the temple, who offered sacrifices, and who cared for the holy objects at the temple. So both, chief, so both priests and scribes, 70 in number, formed the Sanhedrin, and they were from both camps of religious diversity of the day. You had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more of the liberal group. We would think of the Pharisees as the more conservative of the group of Jesus' time. But both parties, Republicans and Democrats, consisted of priests and scribes composed of Sanhedrin. And they were all gathered together to do a trial, to accuse Jesus of being worthy of something that they can put him to death because they hated him. Caiaphas was the high priest during Jesus' time. He reigned from about 18 to 37 A.D. So he was the high priest during Jesus' earthly ministry. He was the son-in-law of a guy named Annas that we know about over in John, who was the high priest before him. We kind of know from, script, from Scripture and from uh, other historical sources, we think that Annas kind of put a good word in for his son-in-law, and the son-in-law rose up in the ranks to become high priest because of him. From Scripture, we know that Caiaphas was not a fan of Jesus. We don't see Caiaphas' name very often, but this is what we know of Caiaphas. He was a high priest, and he was the ringleader to get the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus. You guys ever, if you guys ever been in a group of people, there's always the one guy who's the ringleader of the group, the spokesman, the guy who's the loudest, the one who usually initiates all the projects and everything. Do you guys know? Do you have that person in your mind, or maybe you are that person who does that? Well, Caiaphas was the ringleader for the Sanhedrin. I mean, he was, he was the president by position, but he was, he was just a vocal guy. You know, what Peter was to the disciples, Caiaphas was to the Sanhedrin. And as reports of Jesus were floating around Israel, as he was healing people, as he was doing miracles, resentment grew among the Pharisees. Bitterness grew. And remember, the Pharisees, they were all over the place. 
They were all over the place. So different pockets of Pharisees would hear Jesus and get offended by Jesus' life and his teachings and his, and his rebuking of their hypocrisy. And then they would desire to hurt him. And even we saw earlier on in Mark chapter 2, as early as Mark chapter 2 and 3, we see that they wanted to terminate Jesus' life. They wanted to end him. If they could have put a knife to his throat, they would have. But they feared the repercussions of the people because Jesus attracted massive crowds. But Caiaphas, he wasn't afraid. He was, but he wasn't. He wasn't afraid necessarily to actually put the desire to kill Jesus into practice. And we know earlier on in, in Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 26, when Jesus entered Jerusalem and got the whole city in an uproar, Caiaphas got the Sanhedrin together, and the Sanhedrin were talking about what they're going to do. And Caiaphas said, look, you guys know nothing. Don't you realize it is better for one man to die than for our whole nation to follow this Jesus and we all be killed by the Romans? So here's our mission. Kill Jesus of Nazareth. That was his mission. So you had the high priest. You had the president of the religious system of the day calling for the execution of Jesus Christ. So Caiaphas was the ringleader who got the Sanhedrin to approve. Everyone in the Sanhedrin wanted it. No one was brave enough to officially bring it up in meeting. They had a members meeting, and they voted to kill Jesus. And they marked it down in their notes. And they sought an opportunity to kill Christ. We know, as Pastor Kevin's been preaching, that, that Satan entered the heart of Judas, and Judas came to the court, and they had their open door. Jesus' own follower betrayed him. And Judas came in and he said, All right, Sanhedrin, give me 30 pieces of silver, and I will tell you where Jesus is staying. The open door came, one little crack, and the floodgates of the Sanhedrin's desire to kill Jesus erupted. And they knew that they had Jesus exactly where they wanted him. What was interesting is that Jesus knew this the whole time and willingly endured what was going on. So Caiaphas was the ringleader. He instigated the official proclamation of Jesus' death in the, in the Sanhedrin, and they sought opportunity. Judas provided the open door, and now Christ is in Caiaphas' own courtyard. He's in his own private mansion. We don't know exactly where Caiaphas' palace was. I mean, that's not really the point. The point was he was in the thicket of the enemy. He was behind enemy lines in every sense of the imagination on his own. Here's what's interesting, that as the high priest, he was in charge. He was kind of the spiritual leader of Israel. As the high priest, you had special responsibilities. In the Old Testament, just as a history review, in the Old Testament, God established the priesthood to offer various sacrifices and to care for holy objects in the temple. They descended from Aaron's lineage. So they're descendants from Aaron. Numbers 18.7 says this, God speaking to Aaron. He says, Aaron, you and your sons shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift. God created the office of priesthood, and he created a unique office of the high priest. It was a unique office because he was chosen among the people and had a special responsibility. Here are a few of them. 
First, the high priest had the carved stones called the Urim and the Thummim. Say that five times fast. The Urim and the Thummim. They were cool, precious, carved stones that he would carry that God ordained as a means to determine truth and falsehood. It was a means symbolically to portray the high priest's necessity to seek the wisdom of God in all matters and cases. The irony is, is that Caiaphas is the high priest who possessed the Urim and the Thummim, judged wrongly about Christ. He neglected to seek the wisdom of God if Jesus himself might be God in front of him, if he might be the Messiah. Caiaphas, as a high priest, had, was responsible for determining righteously things for the nation of Israel. And he judged wrongly about Israel's king. He rejected Christ as the Messiah. He not only, the high priest not only had the Urim and the Thummim, but he also had a unique way of offering sacrifices. He had to offer sin offerings for his own sin and for the sin of the people over in Leviticus 4. But the most special sacrifice that the high priest had to make was on the Day of Atonement, a special time in the Jewish calendar where once a year, the high priest and the high priest only would go into the most holy place of the temple called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, or it's also called the Mercy Seat. No other human being could go in. If you tried, you'd be killed. You'd be killed on authority by the priest. The, the priest had temple guards, and they would kill you if you tried to enter. Or if they forgot, if they snoozed on duty, God would, would, would burn you to a crisp. It represented man's inability to come before God on his own. But God said, I will, I will have one person from among you who would be qualified to enter into my presence and to temporarily cover your sins. And that was the office of the high priest. He would come in, and he would sprinkle blood in front of the mercy seat several times. And when he did that, the sins of the nation and himself were temporarily forgiven. Ultimately, what we know from Scripture, guys, is that the high priest was a foreshadow of Jesus himself. The high priest was a symbol to show us our inability to approach God because of our sins. And that sinners, you and I, need a mediator, need a go-between, need a connector and a bridge between us and God. We needed a mediator who could approach God and offer a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that would never have to require continual offerings of other animals that could truly cleanse us from sin. And in Jesus Christ, we have such a go-between. We have such a mediator. We have a perfect high priest who offered himself with his perfect life once and for all for the sins of those who believe. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. For those of us who believe in Christ, Jesus was the high priest who entered in God's presence and offered himself to forgive us of our sin. Every wicked act and every evil deed, it was purified and purchased by Christ for those who believe. Hebrews explains this very clearly. If you guys want a good understanding of the Old Testament, if you want the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once and for all into the holy places, and not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
And he thus secured an eternal redemption. The price that God demanded for our sin was death. Physical and spiritual separation from him for all of eternity. We deserve the punishment that we rightfully deserve for our sin. But Christ entered into the holy place on our behalf through his perfect life. And he died and offered his life as a sacrifice so that we could enter the presence of God without being burnt to a crisp. We don't have to face the lake of fire for all of eternity because Christ entered the fiery presence of God and was and he took the wrath in our place. And he absorbed the full heat of the anger and wrath of God for our, for our sin that we justly deserved. That was the role of the high priest. What kind of high priest was Caiaphas? He was selfish. He was murderous. He was a lawbreaker. And he damned his nation by condemning Christ and pursuing that. We see that Caiaphas got the court to get together and agreed to kill Jesus. And now Jesus is entering his courtyard and is about to face the trial that would determine whether he lived or died. And as we know, it resulted in his death. But thankfully, by God's grace and his, and his providence, it didn't end in death. But that's for a later time. So Jesus is in Caiaphas' courtyard, prepared to face his trial whether he will live or he will die. But we also see another guy enter in the scene. Let's look at Peter. Verse 54, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Pastor Kevin did a great job a few weeks ago talking about Peter, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking all with Peter, but I want us to look at just, just a few aspects about Peter. Is the fact that Peter, although in the garden he ran away with all the other disciples, he was still concerned with Jesus. He was still concerned about Jesus. He, didn't, he never stopped loving Jesus because true believers love Christ no matter what, even though they fail. He loved Jesus, and although he was scared, he still tiptoed at a distance, into the thicket of where Jesus was. He was concerned, and he went behind enemy lines so he could kind of see what was going on with his master. Jesus, Peter was obviously concerned with Christ because he loved him, but also we see that Peter was still a coward, which is ironic. If we look at the distinctive features of Mark, I hope you guys have been reading on your own and seeing the cool features that Mark pulls out, because Mark really only focuses on a few people, excuse me, a few disciples, and exclusively Peter, because he wants to highlight Peter and his confession of Christ. Remember, eight months ago during this time, Peter was the first one of the disciples to say, Jesus, you are the Christ. I believe that you are the king. I believe that you're the one that's going to save us. Now, when push comes to shove, when the heat is on, he caved. He was like a dog with his tail between his legs as he was walking toward where Jesus was, unsure. Believing still Jesus was the Christ, he was scared for his own life ultimately and not for Christ. The very same Peter who was the first one to, to volunteer for a mission, he was the spokes guy, the one, who, the one whose mouth got him in trouble the most, was now silent and afraid and scared for his own life and that he wouldn't run up and say, Jesus, I'm going to be arrested and die with you, just like he had promised earlier in that night. 
But before we get too hard on Peter, because I think we, we like to give Peter a hard time, I still want to point out that, oh, that, that, that although he was a coward, he was courageous. You want to know why he was courageous? Because when all the other disciples fled, he went the furthest. Yes, he might have been scared, but he went further than any of the other disciples. He went in behind enemy lines. Although he did it in a manner that was still still ashamed of being identified with Christ for saving his own skin, Peter was still courageous. He went further than any of the other disciples. He followed Christ more dangerously than any others at this point. But in the end, although he was concerned about Christ and he went further than anyone else, we saw that Peter later would still deny Christ three different times, as Christ said so. Even the best of Peter's intentions to remain loyal to Jesus failed him in the end. And here's a lesson to learn from this, from Peter, here in Mark. If the lesson from Peter is this important truth, and I want you guys to grasp, is that no matter how devoted you may be or want to be to God, you will still fall and fail in some way or another. You will be faithless. As believers, we will still be faithless. Although we love our God and we want to be devoted to Him, at some point, we will cave. When the pressure of a temptation comes or the pressure to give a witness to Christ becomes too much and we, and we buckle our knees and cave in, we will cower like Peter. But here is the blessing of Christ's faithfulness. Thank God that his acceptance of us is not determined by our faithfulness to him. Amen? Thank goodness that it's based on Jesus' faithfulness to us. It's the same faithfulness that Christ right here in Mark 14 is demonstrating before the Sanhedrin. Because though all of us, like the disciples, cowered and will at one point or another flee and deny Christ with our lives or even our lips, he stood fast before these men so that he could ultimately get to the cross to purchase the forgiveness of your denial, to purchase the forgiveness of your failure. Our acceptance by God is not determined by our faithfulness, but it's because of Christ's faithfulness to us. Christ reconciled us to God. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Those who are truly Christ's, even though they fall, even hard like Peter, will be forgiven and restored at all times because of the perfect faithfulness of Christ. So now we shift gears into the courtroom of Jesus. Verse 56 through 57. It says, For many in the council bore false witness against Christ, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet even about this, the testimony did not agree. We shift now from the courtyard scene into the courtroom. They're not in the official courtroom of the synagogue, they're on Caiaphas' own palace at midnight under the cloak of darkness so that they could execute their evil scheme to kill and condemn an innocent man. We see that they hurl false charges against Jesus. Here's what's interesting is that when Jesus got to the courtroom, think of this. This is, this is interesting. They got, a, they got police officers to go out 
on patrol. They entered the garden. They arrested Jesus. They tried to capture other followers but, were, but failed. They brought Jesus into the courtroom. All the judges are there. They are ready to pounce on Jesus. Palms are sweating. Hearts are beating because they have the opportunity to now say, this is why we're going to kill him. But when they got to the courtroom, they didn't even have anything to accuse him of. And they got so excited about their plan that when the plan got to the, to the highest point where they could get Jesus, they realized they had nothing on the guy because he was perfect. There was nothing that Jesus did that was wrong. So you know what they ended up doing? They scrambled. Could you imagine that flying in the courtroom today? Could you imagine grabbing someone off from the street and putting them before a judge? You get all the jury together, and they say, this guy deserves death. Well, what has he done? We're not quite sure, but I want him dead. Well, tell me about it. Tell me how you truly feel. Would that, would that fly in a courtroom today? No. Jesus' trial, guys, if you can know, remember nothing else, is this, bogus. Jesus' trial was bogus. You know why? Because they had nothing on him. You know what it ended up representing? It represented man's twisted desire to not submit to the lordship of God Almighty. And in the Sanhedrin's own sinfulness and depravity, they tried every means to twist truth so they could have something on Jesus. But Jesus was perfect and sinless and above reproach that nothing stuck to him. Every accusation they threw at him fell off like a sticky note that can't stick in a refrigerator. It fell off. So what they ended up having to do was twist the truth. They brought contradictions. The best that they could come up, up excuse me, the best they could come up with were contradictory accounts of a statement Jesus made three years earlier. All right? Over in John 2.19, when Jesus entered the temple, the very first time he actually there's two accounts of Jesus overturning the, ta- the money cha- uh, changers' tables. He made a ruckus twice, and that first time got everyone riled up, and they all ganged up on Jesus and were accusing him. What authority do you have to do this? And the answer Jesus gave was this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So three years later, they're trying to use this to incriminate Jesus. Look what they said. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. First of all, he said, destroy this temple. So he didn't specify, so they were wrong there. He says, and I will build another. Jesus never said, I will build another. Not made with hands. Where did Jesus say that? They made it up. The best they could come up with was taking a, 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 a statement of Christ and trying to say things that Jesus never said. All right, class, you guys can get this. I'm working with Noah on the issue of, of telling the truth. When you don't tell the truth, what do you call that? Lying. What they ended up resorting to in a courtroom of law was accusations that were lies. That were deceitful. We know from John that Jesus 
in his statement was speaking of the temple of his body that he would sacrifice and in three days rise up. It was symbolic. But they twisted his statement so they could have something to pin on Jesus. But in the end, in doing so, they ended up twisting the truth and ended up towing lies. And the judges themselves, who were to uphold the righteousness of God's law, themselves became transgressors and lawbreakers when they broke one of the Ten Commandments, when God says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And they bore false witness against Christ, unjustifiably. And we see that that got Caiaphas in an uproar. I want us to look at the confession of Jesus as the Christ. We see, knowing that the Sanhedrin was scraping the bottom of the barrel and getting splinters under their fingernails, so to speak, for, for accusations against Jesus, Caiaphas steps in. Caiaphas was silent until this point. But now he steps in because he's angry. He's angry because they have nothing to pin on him, and he wants Jesus dead. So he comes in. The text doesn't say he's angry, but you guys could get the point. If, if you have a whole courtroom full of prestigious, very smart, intelligent men having nothing to pin against the guy you want to kill, you'd probably be pretty irritated at them and yourself and at the guy you want to kill. He was angry at, all, at everybody. So he furiously comes up to Jesus, and he's like, Don't you have anything to say, man? Don't you have anything? What are they accusing you of? And he was asking honestly, because what are they accusing you of? There was nothing. He was so angry. He says, so aren't you going to say anything? What, what are these men trying to accuse you of? And Jesus' response was absolute silence. He said nothing. He ignored what they were saying. He ignored them. He ignored every accusation. I call this next little subpoint silence of the lamb. Jesus remained silent. Jesus didn't defend himself against such false charges, and he did it strategically because he knew that would complicate the accusational process. They couldn't come up with anything good to pin on him, and he gave them no reason to, to have anything else to pin on him. He was silent, and that enraged Caiaphas more. Jesus kept silent. I want us to see three reasons why Jesus kept silent. First, it was to fulfill prophecy. Because over in Isaiah 53, 7, over 400 years previous to this event, the prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would remain silent before unjust accusers. Look at Isaiah 53, 7. It says, He, the Messiah, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's just being gently led to the place where it would be slaughtered. So the Lamb of God remained silent. And he didn't, and, and he went with the flow of the court so that he could be the sacrifice for his sins. But he knew he was innocent, and he had nothing to say in defense. He didn't need to. He knew the truth, and that was sufficient for him. We also know that Christ not only fulfilled prophecy, but he was anticipating you and us and all who would believe. He was anticipating us, and he gave us an example to follow. Christ was silent, so we would follow his example when we face abuse and unjust persecution. Peter, seeing what's going on, would later recollect this scene 
when he writes in his first letter, this encouragement for believers to follow Christ's example when being persecuted. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. How could Jesus endure such maltreatment when he was innocent? It's because he, as a man, trusted himself completely to the will of God. And he trusted himself to the righteous judgment of God the Father alone. And that is our example. Guys, when we are in this world, as we talked about in family camp, we will face persecution. The world hated Christ because Christ stands opposed to every sinful value of this world. And, we, and if, you are, if you are identified with Christ... You are not of this world. You will not value the things of this world. And that will pit you against the world. That will separate you with your groups of friends, from co-workers, from nations. We will be hated and reviled by men as we stand firm for Jesus Christ and represent him as a witness. And Peter writes that when we face those times... What we are to remember was what Christ did when he was persecuted and reviled. That he entrusted himself to the Father and his justice. We are to remember that when men persecute us, don't desire to get back at them. Still love them, knowing that God will deal with them on the day of judgment. Whether he will deal graciously by saving them and bringing them to faith, or letting them stay in their depravity, and they will be judged for the persecution and slander and abuse they give you. Know that God is the perfect judge. And anybody who messes with his children, God's going to take care of, whether graciously or justly, as he seems fit. So guys, when we face issues, we live in America, let's be honest, we don't face a whole lot. You might have your friend mad at you for a week, and then text you back if you're a girl, I was just joking, I'm sorry, it's okay if you like Jesus, or whatever. The most we might get is being mocked at by the liberal media, but who cares? Our persecution in America by God's grace is nothing. We know that there are other believers in the world who are literally dying because they profess Christ, especially in the Middle East right now where you have the Muslim Brotherhood coming up. Things in Egypt are being terrible for Christian believers. It's because men because of their, in their sin, and will not submit to the one true God. They will worship whatever form of God other than the one revealed in Scripture. And Christ is God. And until God does a change in their hearts, they will oppose. We will suffer persecution. We have it so nice and so good here. But know this, that persecution might come. And even if it never gets to the point like it is in the Middle East... We will, if we as Hope Baptists, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we're going to receive hard flack from people. Most likely it won't be us being killed. But it might mean our reputation gets thrown down in the mud unjustifiably. It might mean friends betraying you in the back. It might mean people getting angry at you, spitting at you, or whatever, calling you a homophobe, Bible-thumping 
Jesus freak. But when that happens, we are to remember to follow Christ's example. He was a duck on water. He didn't let any of those things bother him. He let it slid off his back because he knew that God was the one who judges righteously. And we are to do the will of God, just as Christ did the will of God. And being silent so that he would become the sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, we see that Christ also did it to further push the court. His silence was necessary because Caiaphas and anger would then amp up his accusations against Christ. And in anger, he says, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus answers immediately and without apology. He's been silent up until this point because he had no need to have to defend himself. But when it came to this issue, he did not remain silent because what he asked was true and he made it known to all. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answered, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. Jesus is the Chosen One. People all over the world still ask this question today. Who is Jesus? Was Jesus truly God? And that is the greatest question you can ask because it will determine your eternal destiny. So what is your answer to that question? Is Jesus the Christ to you? Is he the Son of God? Because he is. And Jesus calls their attention back to Scripture. Jesus quotes two popular messianic passages about the Messiah. Back in Daniel seven thirteen through 14 and Psalm 110, verse 1, he says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven, Jesus is saying, look, I am the Messiah that was prophesied. And eventually you're going to see me after I die and rise again. And I'm going to be seated at the right hand of power. You might have some power over me here because it's been granted to you. But I am the ultimate judge. You, Caiaphas, who's asking me this question, you are acting as a judge. But I am truly your judge. And one day you will see me on my mighty throne of power. And I will be the judge of all the earth. And I am coming with the clouds to bring judgment on this earth. Best watch your tongue is what he said, message version. And we see that this broke, brought Caiaphas to the breaking point. We see that Christ is condemned. Caiaphas, in result of this, he couldn't, he, because Caiaphas couldn't believe such a statement because he was so enraged, he was so filled with malice and hatred toward Christ, he tore his clothes, he tore his priestly vest. He says, I cannot take this anymore. He screamed and he called Jesus, a blasphemer, and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision, court? And in unanimous decision, the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus as deserving of death. What's interesting is that the final, the reason why Jesus was condemned to die was because of blasphemy. But they had no reason to not believe him. Caiaphas finally found a statement from Jesus that they could have something to pin on him. They charged him with blasphemy because they could not bring themselves to believe that God would come as a man and would come into this world as the form of Jesus Christ 
they wouldn't believe it. They would not believe it. And they unanimously called for his death. They called for his death. At this point, Christ is stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The court erupts into a furor, and the abuse of Jesus begins. They had no legit reason to kill him, but they found something they, they could actually agree upon, that Jesus was the Christ. And they thought that was blasphemy. Never really considering the fact that the alternative could have been true, that he was who he said he was. And they called for his death. Thus, the abuse of Christ begins. Verse 65 says, And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, mocking him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. They mock him, some spit on his face, Others put a bag around his head and began punching him in his face, mocking Jesus' ability to predict the future by putting the bag over his head and hitting him. The other accounts in the gospel, they say, Who's hitting you, Jesus? If you know the future, can't you see who's hitting you? As they break his nose and they bruise his face. The anger and malice that these guys had in Jesus was so intense that as soon as they got the approval to say, all right, we now agree he deserves to die, all of it came out. And Jesus was bounced around a room of 70 men being mocked and spit and punched and bruised as they were hitting him with their anger, and they enjoyed that they could express such hatred toward him. And such is the response of all fallen man when confronted with the truth. And we will want to reject Christ, that we will want to reject God, even violently. And that's in our world today. Like I mentioned in the Middle East, men will not admit that Jesus is Lord, but that Allah is God. And they will kill anyone who says otherwise. The depravity of man becomes extremely evident here when they condemn Jesus. Their vile, evil, wicked hearts come to surface, come to life through the physical abuse and the verbal mockery of Jesus Christ. They let it all out. And this is exactly what Jesus had predicted, if you remember earlier in Mark. For eight months, as Jesus was trekking from Philippi to Jerusalem, what was he telling his disciples? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. The predictions that Christ gave earlier in Mark's gospel as we've been going on are now unfolding. Mark 10, 33, the final time Jesus gave the prediction of his suffering and death, he said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We just saw that. And they will condemn him to death 
We just saw that. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. We'll see that next week. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The prophecies of Christ are now unfolding at, 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 at rapid speed. And I want us to review real fast the case, the case against Christ again. Let's look at Jesus' trial. Let's look at it from the start. It was bogus from the start. Deuteronomy 17.6 Deuteronomy prohibited convicting a suspect to death based on only one testimony. And what testimony did these guys have? Only Jesus's. You were to have two or three witnesses that all agreed to kill a man. They only had Christ, and his testimony was true. We see that the cases for capital punishment had to begin during the daytime, and if not finished, adjourned by nightfall, so that there would not be injustice. But Jesus' trial began at midnight. Judges had to be impartial and unbiased so as not to cloud justice. But Jesus' accusers hated him from the get-go because he convicted them of their self-righteousness and self-ambition. He was a threat to their power and influence over the people, and even before Jesus wanted, excuse me, and even before Jesus entered the courtroom, his judges had already wanted him dead. And under Roman occupation, the Sanhedrin could convict a man to the death sentence, but only a Roman judge could authorize and perform it. And we will see that that's their next step in this process, is to take him before Pontius Pilate, so that they could get their final approval to kill the man they've been wanting to kill. And I want us to look at... so. What does that mean for us today? What does this trial mean for us? There are several things, but I want us to look at this. When we ask the question, what is the Christ factor in this passage? What is the gospel factor in this passage? I want us to look at Jesus condemned for the condemned. Here is the heart of this passage is that the innocent Son of God was unjustly condemned so that we who deserve condemnation could be made innocent. The guiltless Son of God was tried in a courtroom of sinful men so that sinful men could be declared not guilty in the courtroom of God. Jesus stood condemned in a court of law so that all who believe in him could stand justified before the supreme judge of all the world. The rejection that Christ received by his accusers was so that you and I who believe in Christ would not have to be rejected in the end on judgment day by the one who rightfully deserves to accuse us. Christ, Christ willingly placed himself in a position where he would be so abused and mocked and mistreated so that he could ultimately go to the cross to be the high priest who would enter the fiery judgment presence of God on your behalf and on my behalf and on all who believe and say, my blood covers this. Jesus endured this treatment for you. 
He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for you. You deserved to be in Jesus' spot in this passage. You deserved to be rightfully condemned and accused and judged of breaking the moral law of God. But instead, Christ entered the courtroom of sinners so that you could be made a saint. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame right here, and he bore the wrath so that we could stand forgiven at the cross. So let's praise him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for being our great God. Impress upon our hearts what, what treatment you received so that we could be forgiven. Jesus, I, I cannot express to you, nor any of us here, how, how wonderful you are. And we cannot even imagine what it, is, what it would be like to be you in your position here in Mark 14. The only thing we can say is thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. And God, help us all to remember that every sin on you was laid. And thank you that you took the blame, that you bore the wrath, and that we now stand forgiven. At your resurrected, glorified feet. In your name we pray.